Welcome to the first episode of the Headless Thinking Podcast. In this episode, we will discuss how philosophy can stop overthinking. For future episodes and other updates, please find the links in the show notes below. You are thinking too much. Everyone will have had this phrase said to them at some point in their lives, some more than others. But we've all been caught by friends or family to be stuck in a loop. Uh, People will make you aware that you are overthinking things. Your ability to analyze a situation is totally out of control, and you're seeing patterns where there are in fact none. Or perhaps they are not as significant as you think they are. So when people tell you this, it's a moment where you are made aware that you're doing something that's not healthy for you. That should be obvious. The general advice is then to just relax, stop the train of thought from going. Because if you don't stop it, this train is not going anywhere, but infinitely forward without a final destination. So for your own good, you are told to pause. Some people will be suspicious of philosophy for this reason, because they think it's an obscure interest of a small group of people, amateurs or professionals, engaged in overthinking in some sort of semi-professional and maybe even a fancy way to show off. From this point of view, philosophers are these men with their heads in the clouds and have very little to teach us when it comes to actually living our lives. It would be one thing if this is a recent misconception, but this has been through the centuries a great deal of people's attitude towards philosophy. They see it as a fancy way of overthinking or to cope with your overthinking and calling it a discipline of some sorts. So something is obviously not being explained or presented properly, if this is actually not the case about philosophy. Philosophy is often thought to be the very opposite of a mind at peace. And many people even avoid it, as they assume it will only lead to restlessness, a mind caught in a storm of thoughts. And if you are someone who is interested in philosophy, it's difficult to convince other people it is a valuable activity. More often than not, it's an odd private hobby. But this further proves there's something fundamentally wrong in the way philosophy has been understood by people. It is actually harmful to people's own well-being when they deny any importance or worth to it in their own lives. While it isn't bad advice in itself, to urge someone to cut it out with the overthinking part, just stopping the process of thinking, isn't always going to be a solution. A pause is always helpful, but eventually we will have to confront the mind again, because we are never outside of the mind. When one is urged to stop thinking so much, it's an indicator that this commonsensical advice is somewhat helpful but not completely helpful in the long term. It's only half the help we need. We aren't told what to do afterwards. That is completely left in the dark. So what we need is the help of something that has a better plan for an outlay of the might. And ironically, this is where philosophy shows its worth. In ancient Greek philosophy, Commonsensical advice like the one we've discussed so far, like just stop thinking, just relax a little bit, focus on something else, that was called in ancient Greek philosophy doxa. It's a term that comes from the verb dokein, which means to appear, to seem, to think, to accept. Doxa are common beliefs or popular opinions. They are contrasted with episteme or knowledge. So in other words, whatever is held by the public as true should be taken with a grain of salt. Aristotle, one of the greats of Greek philosophy, considered doxa to be the first step on the path in finding true knowledge. All these commonly held beliefs are not bad, but kind of like necessary baby steps. Plato, the mentor of Aristotle, saw doxa as being a belief and not a product of reason. 
As such, doxa were the product of the lower parts of the soul. We'll get back to Plato later. The search for true knowledge is exactly what philosophy is all about. Not what someone believes to be true, but knows to be true. The Greeks, as well as philosophers in many different parts of the world and time periods, wanted to throw out half-truths, beliefs, and all sorts of assumptions taken for granted. They aimed for nothing less than the truth. And this is why philosophy eventually gave birth to science, which is the method to discover truth through experiments, undeniable truths that we can all verify, that we can all go out, explore, and discover the same things other people have discovered before us. That's how we reach undeniable conclusions about reality. Now, the pursuit of truth seems like a mind-boggling enterprise. Many would argue that it is futile. But the irony is that making such a statement is that one is actually already doing a bit of philosophy. You can't escape the act of making claims about reality when you have a mind. This is one of the all-too-obvious facts people tend to overlook. So why do people still presume that philosophy is a dazzling disorder of thoughts? A lot of it has to do with some of the first philosophers and what they primarily dealt with. Socrates isn't considered to be guilty of this. He is regarded as one of the founders of Western philosophy and was eventually put on trial and executed for what the authorities of Athens claimed to be his corrupting effect on the minds of the youth of Athens. His constant barrage of questions upset the social order of the city and taking nothing for granted and putting every belief into question, that will inevitably lead to a swelling group of enemies. But that isn't what people would consider to be weird or absurd. Maybe it can be annoying, but it isn't overthinking. So Plato, he might be more fitting for this tack of the overthinker. The modern English mathematician and philosopher Alfred Whitehead famously said that the European philosophical tradition is a series of footnotes to Plato. What he meant by that is that you cannot imagine European philosophy without Plato. He holds the same position as Confucius does in East Asia. Every European who decided to participate in this tradition commented in some shape or form on ideas that were first put forward by Plato. So Plato's importance is undeniable, and he is undoubtedly one of the most important and influential individuals in human history. Yet for many, he would be a difficult read to go through. Breaking down Plato's thinking is outside the scope of this piece, but to summarize, Plato believed that the re true reality is not found through the senses, and that this reality is found through reason. Now, the real world, the world of forms, exists separately from this incomplete world of the senses. So this is where people's heads will start spinning, trying to visualize what exactly he is saying here. Despite that Plato is one of the most fascinating philosophers to study still, more than 2000 years after the fact, it isn't surprising many people will start seeing the level of abstraction and complexity of Plato and find it startling what he brings to the table and what it is to try and explain the whole of reality. That is a little bit too much to carry for people sometimes. So while it is true that the European philosophical tradition is a series of footnotes to Plato, that does not mean that everyone agrees with him or with his style. There's a lot of disagreement, even concerning the broad strokes of what he claims. In fact, during his time, there were many who distanced themselves from him even before he became this influential figure. And this then brings us to the cynics. When we hear cynicism, most do not think of philosophy. We think of an attitude, a cynical attitude, a general distrust of other people's motives. A cynical person has a lack of faith or hope in humanity. He sees most people as motivated by greed and blind ambition in pursuit of material goals. For the cynic, this is all vanity, and such desires are unobtainable. 
What humanity is trapped in is ultimately meaninglessness. And so the whole human race deserves very little else but ridicule. But this term cynic, as we've been accustomed to use, is an exaggerated emphasis on the negative aspects of cynic philosophy. There is a lot more nuance to all of this. In fact, the cynics are actually the opposite of pessimists who have given up on humanity. Now, cynicism, it all begins with Antisthenes. Antisthenes considered Plato to be everything but the successor to Socrates. And although this is still taught in schools and universities globally, that Plato is the successor to the great Socrates, it is important to remember that Antisthenes indeed saw Plato as somewhat of an illegitimate heir to the tradition that was started by Socrates. If anything, he and other cynics considered themselves to be the true Socratics, and everybody else as having missed the point of what the great teacher had to say. Although Socrates was not an ascetic, like the cynics would become, that's a person who renounces riches, he did profess a love of virtue and a general indifference to wealth, together with a disregard for the opinion of others and the general public. Like Plato, Antisthenes was a close friend and follower of Socrates, and had spent a significant amount of time in conversation with him. Every day he walked long distances to reach him and enthusiastically studied his ideas. Unlike Plato, he didn't start a school or institution to spread his teachings, but he did start the movement we now know as cynicism. This movement would last for more than 500 years, up until the end of antiquity. It can be seen as quite successful when we consider there was no institutional framework that helped teach and disseminate these ideas across time and place. Let's make a short detour to the 18th century. I'll read a quote of a French writer named Marquis de Vauvenarc. He said, when a thought is too weak to be expressed simply, simply drop it. This quote illustrates the almost timeless influence the cynics will have on the history of thought. Marquis de Vauvenac's concept of expressing simply is something we find among thinkers who prefer clear and accessible use of language. He himself was somewhat of an early modern Stoic. Many centuries after the Stoicist movement was at its height during the days of the Roman Empire. But as we shall see, Stoicism is very much indebted to the cynics, and it might even be considered an offshoot. Marquis de Vauvenac was one of those people who saw very little value in jargon, with a whole bunch of fancy new terms and sentence constructions in which you get lost as if it were in a maze. He died relatively young, only 31 years old, but a year before he published his work anonymously. It was his friend Voltaire who encouraged him to do so. A century later, his work would still be read and quoted favorably. Arthur Schopenhauer was a fan of his and quoted several of Ovenark's sayings, such as, Clarity is the good fate of philosophers. The family tree of this whole attitude of expressing things clearly and cut it out with all these extremely complex metaphysical philosophical systems, that attitude goes back to Antisthenes. His whole style and attitude can be summarized with the following story. Zeno once held a plea for his teacher Parmenides, who theorized that being is unmovable, that nothing in reality truly ever changes. All that exists is pure being, and there is no becoming, no coming or going. Zeno tried to prove this with a lengthy explanation that this is indeed the case. Antisthenes then just stood up and walked away. Cynics have no patience for deep metaphysical systems and ideas. Antisthenes made it a habit to often mock such philosophers. 
especially Plato and his followers. A horse I can see, said Antistinus, but horsehood I cannot see. So these definitions were seen as ridiculous wastes of time, as they only achieve a circle in the mind, really. Like saying how a tree is vegetable growth is logically no different than saying a tree is a tree. Antistinus, his most famous student, Diogenes, he sabotaged Plato's lectures and often tried to distract the listeners by bringing food and eating during the discussions. When Plato gave the definition of a man as a featherless biped, Diogenes went out and brought a chicken back into Plato's academy, saying, Behold, I've brought you a man. Now, we'll talk about Diogenes later on, but let's just say that he and his teachers shared the same attitude and many other cynics would follow in this style of ridiculing philosophy as it was practiced by their own contemporaries. So this isn't necessarily something that people outside of philosophy feel. Let that be clear already. This is not something non-philosophers feel about philosophy. Many philosophers themselves, back then and now, feel that this obscure language is really distracting from what philosophy should be all about. The cynics were critical of most education, as it fills the mind with baloney, and very little that would actually help a person lead a life that can be truly called wise. So they didn't make any friends among people working and involved in education. When Antistides was reproached for spending time among low-life scum, he said, well, doctors also spend time with sick patients, but aren't sick themselves. And his student Diogenes was told the same, to which he replied, yes, the sun too shines on piles of shit, but does not become dirty because of it. Antistinus saw a life that was very different from most philosophers. Instead of seeking disciples and organizing a school, he threw away most of his belongings and focused all his attention on a life lived honestly and virtuously. The honest part is already obvious in the examples mentioned thus far. And there are many more of these frank and comical exchanges he had with people. Honesty and virtue are inseparable for the cynics. If someone sugarcoats anything, that person is lying to himself and to the world. Nothing nutritious for the self can come out of sweetening your language or your style. And this is why the cynics are remembered for being sometimes quite brutal in their wording and behavior. For this reason, their name derives from the ancient Greek dog, kinikos. So they were called dog-like. Their shameless rejection of accepted social behavior and their decision to live on the streets led to them being called dogs. The cynics themselves then proudly embraced this title, with them saying that they bite for your benefit and how, like dogs, they guard the truth. The dog became their favorite animal and symbolized everything they considered their philosophy to be. So even though they firmly rejected academic philosophy, they nonetheless practiced philosophy. Cynicism was not anti-philosophical. What they argued was that only through clarity of the mind can one come to truth and wisdom. The pursuit of all these other philosophers is actually the total opposite of what cynics would regard as a mind possessing clarity. So they will fill their head with a mess of conceptions of how things are, these other philosophers, but according to the cynics, they are nowhere closer to dealing with the things themselves. An attitude such as arrogance was hated by the cynics. Even though they were brutally honest themselves, arrogance stems from a false idea of what you are and what is truly important. Someone who is wise cannot be arrogant as he has the right perception of what he and others are. Pretentiousness comes from believing that by being part of a society or any other group, being successful at playing that game, the subsequent praise for doing so well 
is a sign of a life well lived, while for the cynic that is pure foolishness, as society is built on nothing resembling wisdom and held together by hogwash. Whatever social conventions urge us to commit to and work on is in the end only beneficial to society, but very little to the individual members, who are always the victim of this collective greed. So mental clarity or lucidity was one of the goals of life for the cynics. That is reached through logic and reason. The other was what is called in Greek eudaimonia, or human flourishing, which for cynics means a general indifference to the changes of life. Now here we get to the crux of the whole matter of overthinking and how that relates to the cynics. What disturbs the mind, according to cynicism, is attachment to our passions. Now this does not imply that they want us to be emotionally dead, but actually to not be on the verge of dying with our emotions in charge of us. For cynics, overthinking is not a product of thought, but an effect of these emotions or passions on our thinking. It is a type of thinking that isn't very developed, and the cynic is indifferent, but neither cold or detached. He is an aware observer of what happens to him emotionally. He isn't jumping into the hellish traffic of emotions with all the anger and frustration that comes with it. He stands at the side of the road and lets it all pass by. He realizes that these passions are, and they're not part of him, but things happening to him. Such a mental state can only be achieved with a mind that is present, not that is absent. So if you want to stop overthinking, according to the cynics, what you need is a strong mind, not a weak mind that doesn't allow thoughts, but a mind that is strong enough to deal with emotions. Because that was the trigger in letting your thoughts be consumed by them. Antisthenes would become the teacher of the most famous cynic Diogenes of Sinope. Diogenes lived an equally controversial life, but added even more spice to it. Even during his day, his reputation was known far and wide. Diogenes believed that virtue was better revealed in action than in theory. This stress on action turned his life almost into a performance art. He centered his lifestyle around the basics and furiously criticized social conventions and institutions. He saw society as a confused and corrupted bunch. In a highly non-traditional fashion, he slept and ate wherever he chose. When asked where he was from, he said he was a citizen of the world, rather than doing what all Greeks did, which is identifying with just one city. But none of this meant that he or other cynics would retreat from society. Diogenes, together with his followers, were in fact always visible to the public's case and wanted to be so. They were concerned with virtuousness, and that is something that is only real when shared. There are two famous depictions of Diogenes that have been recreated over and over again throughout the ages. One is where he walks around with a lantern, searching for an honest man. It is said that Diogenes used to stroll around in full daylight with a lamp. When asked what he was doing, he would reply, I am just looking for a man. Why he said that is because the unreasonable behavior of the people around him meant that they did not qualify as human. Diogenes looked for a human being, but found nothing but liars and cheaters. They lie and cheat to others, and also to themselves, and so they lie and cheat their own nature. So they might as well not be human in Diogenes' eyes. In one of the most discussed anecdotes from philosophical history, we see Diogenes as the beggar he was, living in his large jar, in the marketplace of Corinth. Now Alexander the Great is there too, celebrating his triumph over all of Greece, who would soon go on a campaign to become one of the greatest conquerors in world history. Diogenes was sunbathing, and when asked by the great king if he needed anything, the only reply Alexander got was to get out of his sunlight. Instead of being offended, 
Alexander admired Diogenes, saying to his men, If I were not Alexander, I wish I were Diogenes. The philosopher was unimpressed seeing the king of kings, and treated him like any other random man in the street. His bravery in risking offending Alexander, without knowing whether the king would be tolerant of such behavior beforehand, marks him as truly honest. The contemporary German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk considers this the most well-known anecdote from Greek antiquity, and not without justice. Sloterdijk interprets the story in the following way. It demonstrates in one stroke what antiquity understands by philosophical wisdom. Not so much a theoretical knowledge, but rather an unerring sovereign spirit. The wise man turns his back on the subjective principle of power, ambition and the urge to be recognized. He is the first one who is uninhibited enough to say the truth to the prince. Diogenes' answer negates not only the desire for power, but the power of desire as such. So Diogenes, in a sense, well, not just in a sense, but totally, turned his back on the king, as him being the king. He treated him like anybody else. And by doing so, he brings a whole new dimension to reality. Now, this sovereign spirit, or independent spirit, is what inspired many across the ages when reading up on the cynics. In the Middle Ages, philosophers read the same story and saw it as very illustrative of how Alexander, who saw no one capable of surpassing him when it came to doing one's will, was actually surpassed by Diogenes, a beggar living in a jar who did philosophy out in the open, and who proved himself the better man by refusing to accept from Alexander everything except those things that Alexander could not give, namely nature itself. The sun's shine was never Alexander's, and will never be his, no matter how many conquests he undertakes. When common men asked him questions, he was as honest and direct in his responses. One time a man asked what Diogenes was looking for. Diogenes said, I'm looking for peace. The man asked if he had found it. And Diogenes said, I found that you will never find it in this world, before he left. In another story, Diogenes told someone that true happiness is a mind at rest. Without that, all the treasures of the kings of the world are useless. The poverty of the mind is what makes such a man a poor idiot, regardless of how many riches surround him. How not to be poor of mind? Well, it should be obvious by now that the cynics see honesty with oneself and others as one such path to a wealth that cannot be stolen or lost when gained. When the staff members of a politician called Anaximenes were taking a whole bunch of the man's stuff across the street, Diogenes asked, whose belongings are these? To which they said, they belong to Anaximenes. Diogenes left. Does he not feel ashamed that he possesses all these things, but does not possess himself? The cynics were not necessarily urging everybody to abandon material comfort, to become beggars and homeless people as they effectively were, even though they themselves lived a life which we would consider to be the life of a monk, or like I just said, like a homeless person, they did not hold everybody to that standard or expect people to follow their example. You could still be rich, powerful, and most definitely be someone worthy of respect and admiration. Antistinus, for example, had written extensively on the Persian king Cyrus, praising him for his character, worthy of the quality noble. Cyrus was the most powerful ruler of his time, and conquered an empire that almost controlled the whole known world for the Greeks. Not exactly a bum we're dealing with here. And his rule was one of hard work, and had achieved peace and prosperity through the well. 
All these people under his rule saw life improve for the better. So Cyrus himself was a bit of a philosopher too, and claimed to have said that the most important life lesson is to unlearn your own bad traits. Now this outlook is entirely in line with how the cynics view life and how a life well lived can be achieved. So no matter your social status, you can learn the same valuable lessons and create for yourself an ethically superior and happy life. What matters is if you are the sovereign of your own life, not whether or not fate has granted you a crown or not. Someone who is a constant victim of his own desires and a slave of social conventions is no master of whatever he owns. Cynic philosophy had a major impact on the Greek world, ultimately becoming an important influence for Stoicism. Zeno of Kitchium was the founder of the Stoic school. Zeno's main teacher was Crates, a student of Diogenes, who, as we've seen, was himself a student of Antisthenes. The family tree here speaks for itself. The whole philosophy of Stoicism is indeed based on the moral ideas of the Cynics. Zeno found it difficult, though, to assimilate the Cynic shamelessness and brutal honesty with his own thoughts, and so he ended up developing a virtue ethics that could be understood and practiced by a large number of people. Stoicism would eventually become one of the most important philosophical schools in the history of the West and inform millions of people from ancient to modern times. Their whole moral outlook has a huge imprint from Stoicism. Now, this is another indirect contribution of the cynics to humanity, and it's all too often forgotten. But one doubts if they really would have cared for not being trademarked. In any case, the influence cynicism had on Stoicism is undeniable. And the impact Stoicism has had on the history of Western moral philosophy is also foundational. You cannot imagine a bookstore with a personal development section today without Stoic ideas in them. It's inescapable to hear a self-help guru refer to the Stoics. So the ghost of the cynicist past looms over our lifestyle choices. And so it's best we start paying attention to these forgotten founding fathers of the idea of a life well worth living. So in conclusion, for the cynics, all the power and wealth of the earth are nothing without a self that is the king over its own mind. A self that is powerless in the face of thoughts. All the insults, jokes, and extreme behavior the cynics are known for are there to wake the common people up to things they would only think about if slapped in the face like that. Society is all too happy to keep people stuck in a rut where all they pursue is more and more stuff more and more validation from others. It helps the shops to stay open and the leaders active in managing this lot. No one else is addressing these ideas, so the cynics have to put up quite a show to remind everyone what you should pay attention to. They urge you to stop depending on others and be more shameless about yourself. Shamelessness only hurts those who have a petty mind anyway and see silly traditions as more important than a person's true nature. We all benefit if someone has stopped caring about the opinion of others. Such a person starts focusing on things that matter more during the short lifespan humans have in this world. The people who ask you to stop overthinking, as well as these other abstract philosophers the cynics mocked, who think themselves a whole universe of ideas, well, they're both wrong. The first group of people, the ones who tell you to stop overthinking and stick to commonly held beliefs, have no clue what to tell you what the next step should be. How to stop overthinking in the future. There are these masses the cynics love to insult, love to wake up, love to stir, love to bully around. The second group built a whole bunch of castles in their mind 
without ever getting to any concrete steps on how to live. In itself, there's nothing wrong with this, with the abstract philosophy. But it's all too often an escape, the cynics felt, into a dream world. And a dream world is never that much of a step into actually doing things now. Philosophy was and still is a living tradition. It teaches a student how to live life to the best of their abilities, not just how to think deep thoughts. We always say we go and read or study philosophy, but it would sound weird if anybody said if they went out to go do philosophy. Yet this is exactly the change of mind we need. Philosophy, like with the school of cynicism, can still do something else than theorize. It can powerfully remind you of a truth that isn't about the world, but about yourself. That the problem isn't your mind, but what you allow it to be taken by. That you will only ever be free if you can decouple it from the toxic beliefs you have about the world and about what your life should be about. Your mind is already telling you that something is not right when it goes into overdrive. Allow yourself to get smacked in the face by an aggressive cynic and accept that you're being an idiot right now. Look how and where you can let go. Admit where you are wrong. Reflect on what you think you possess and start polishing up what you truly have. The mind that experiences this floating world.